and welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose, and I'm your host. Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode, we take on a specific possible, or not so possible, future scenario. We always start with a little field trip to the future to check out what's going on, and then we teleport back to today to talk to experts about how that world that we just heard might really go down. Got it? Great. This episode, we're starting in the year 2059. Hey, are you Mr. Williams? Yep, you must be Sally Murphy. Here to see Unit 4? That's me. Great, come on down this way. Okay, so here she is. So you've got a a brand new electric stove here. Uh, Have you ever lived under before? No. Uh, Okay, so we can't have fire down here. It's too dangerous. So everything's electric. Well, I mean, unless you've got the money to live at the Calypso. They have these incredible supercritical water reactors that you can have flame inside of. I'm guessing you don't have that kind of money. You've guessed right. (laughs) Well, this is a brand new one, though. Really nice. This unit is temperature controlled. Here's the thermostat. We use vent heat instead of solar. It's more efficient, and we're close enough to Scooby to make it easy. Is this compressed air or upper air? Oh, a mix. About 50-50. So if you want to call up above, you'll use this contact box here. You can plug in pretty much any of your devices. We don't monitor calls going in or out. What else? Oh, utilities are included, since we have to handle everything in-house, obviously. You've got reef access 24-7, of course. I can show you where the entry is if you want. How do you feel about pets? Uh, nothing with fur. You, you could have fish. Although that would be kind of weird. Lizards and birds are okay, but nothing that sheds. It's already hard enough to keep the air clean down here. Any other questions? I don't think so. Do you have an application form? Yeah, here's a card with the link. We'll run your credit check, all the usual stuff. A couple of other people have seen this place, so I'd apply soon if you want it. Great. (laughs) Thanks. Okay, so this episode is about living underwater. A lot of you have requested an episode about underwater cities, so here we go. Living Underwater is featured in a ton of sci-fi and fantasy. There's, of course, the Disney movie Atlantis, but there's also the classic 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. There's the Michael Crichton book Sphere. There's the show Stargate Atlantis. There's the city of Otogunga in a Star Wars movie that we will not name. 
There is Sub Diego from Aquaman. And there's my favorite, which is the city of Rapture from the game Bioshock, which is beautifully rendered. I love looking at pictures of it. Humans have been interested in living underwater for a long time. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was published in 1870. And of course, we've wondered if we could survive down there for a lot longer. In the 1940s, Jacques Cousteau started pushing the envelope when it came to scuba diving and filming underwater, giving people images of what that environment looked like. In 1956, Cousteau released a documentary shot underwater called The Silent World, and it was a total sensation. It was one of the first films to show people color footage of underwater worlds. The Silent World was the first documentary to win the Palme d'Or Award at the Cannes Film Festival, and it was the only documentary to win until 2004. So you have Cousteau pushing the boundaries of what humans can do underwater, and around the same time, the U.S. and Russia start to try to show each other up with their technological advancements. You're probably already familiar with the fact that the Cold War was in large part about space exploration, the so-called space race. And you might be familiar with President John F. Kennedy's famous moonshot speech delivered on May 25th, 1961. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. But what you might not know is that a month before that speech, JFK asked Congress to double its spending on ocean research, asking them to spend over $2 billion over the next decade. Here is what JFK said about that push in 1961. Knowledge of the oceans is more than a matter of curiosity. Our very survival may hinge upon it. In 1963, he again talked about the ocean in a speech at the National Academy of Sciences. Our goal is to investigate the world ocean, its boundaries, its processes, its processes. To a surprising extent, the sea has remained a mystery. 10,000 fleets still sweep over it in vain. We know less at the, oceans of our, at the ocean of our feet where we came from than we do of the sky above our head. It is time to change this, to use the, to the full our powerful new instruments of oceanic exploration, to drive back the frontiers of the unknown in the waters which encircle our globe. So during JFK's presidency, he really saw both space and the sea as two sides of the exploration coin. Had Kennedy lived, maybe he would have uh, set some goals and, and put the country on a more vigorous path in that direction, just as he did with the uh, goal of sending a man to the moon and returning him safely to the earth by the end of the decade, which was a very bold deadline. And there, was, there turned out to be no such deadline for going in the other direction. This is Ben Helworth. He's the author of a book called Sea Lab, America's Forgotten Quest to Live and Work on the Seafloor. Ben's book is a really interesting look at this period of time when the U.S. was really trying to get people living at the bottom of the ocean, and why that effort came to an end. And you can see today how one program wound up taking off and the other sank. Sorry. 
Today, we have the International Space Station, but we don't have anything like that on the seafloor. Today, we hear tech entrepreneurs talking about building settlements on Mars. But nobody is really talking about underwater cities. So what happened? It all starts in the late 1950s with a guy named George Bond. George Bond was an unlikely character to turn into a leading voice for breaking the diving barriers and diving deeper and staying longer. He was a country doctor in rural western North Carolina, far from the ocean, and the ocean was far from his thoughts until he joined the Navy and he was being trained as a uh, diving medical officer. And he just got fascinated with diving. But the more that he looked into diving, the more Dr. Bond realized that there was so much that could still be done. And he wondered, well, how is it that, uh, you know, here we are at the dawn of the space age and we don't even know how deep a diver can go, ultimately, or how long a diver can stay down. Just like the human body is not designed for going into space, our fleshy meat cages aren't really suited for underwater living. There are a few main challenges when it comes to submerging the human body, and most of them stem from pressure. Water weighs a lot, so as you descend deeper into the water, your body is subjected to more and more pressure. And when you ascend, that pressure gets less and less. If you ascend too quickly, uh, bubbles form in your blood and tissues, and you become a little bit like a soda can that's been popped open. And as you can imagine, that, that produces bubbles in your blood and tissues, which is not good and can cause all manner of physiological havoc from, depending on where the bubbles lodge, from, from uh, injury and paralysis to death. So you don't want that. Another challenge with diving is that pressure can actually change the way that certain gases impact your body. So at high pressure, gases like nitrogen become anesthetics, which basically means that they start to make people loopy. All that nitrogen causes a, an effect uh, known as nitrogen narcosis that basically gives you the feeling of being very tipsy and drunk. And it, it affects different people different ways, much as drinking alcohol affects different people different ways. At really deep depths, you basically can't just breathe a regular air mix for extended periods of time. It's not safe. All of these things are handled by scuba divers by following decompression charts and making sure that you're ascending slowly enough and then staying above the water for long enough between dives that you're safe. And technical divers who want to go deeper have to be trained on how to mix and breathe different gas formulations. But what if you actually wanted to live underwater? In the 1950s, nobody actually knew if that was possible to do safely. And that was the challenge that Dr. Bond decided to take on. Dr. Bond came up with a concept that he called saturation diving. A lot of people thought it was too dangerous or too crazy to even try. But the idea was if you spend enough time at a certain depth, your body becomes saturated with the gases that you're breathing. If you stayed down long enough and allowed your, your body to become saturated with those gases at a, at a certain depth and pressure, then you could actually stay down as long as you want provided you had somewhere to stay. To test this concept of saturation diving, Dr. Bond proposed Sea Lab, an experimental underwater habitat. And he did get it approved, but they did not give him very much money to work with. It was 35000 or so to, to build the thing itself, and then the, the total budget for the program was like a couple hundred thousand dollars or something. And the reason for that minuscule funding was that not everybody thought 
any of this was such a good idea. This had nowhere near the enthusiasm behind it that the something like uh, NASA and the space program did. And it was built in a almost comically low-budget fashion at a Navy base in Panama City, Florida, using some salvaged uh, parts from old floats that were welded together into a sort of uh, submarine, like a stout submarine-shaped enclosure. But Dr. Bond was committed, and they built Sea Lab 1 out of a hodgepodge of parts. If you imagine a sort of uh, miniature submarine, it's about that sort of cigar-like shape, but only about 40 feet long or so, and maybe nine feet around in diameter. So, you know, there's room to stand up in there. Uh, you've got bunks at one end and a little bit of a kitchen set up and uh, space to work in the middle. Then on the other end of Sea Lab was a hole in the floor that led straight to the ocean. Now, this is a key part of the design. Just like astronauts leave the ISS to do work or experiments, the Sea Lab residents would be able to leave the enclosure and go work on things outside. Because the pressure inside the Sea Lab is the same as the water pressure outside, so the water does not uh, rise above the hatch. And so a diver, or a aquanaut as they call them, living in Sea Lab has only to put on dive gear and drop through the hatch in the floor and can go visit the seabed outside at any time of day or night. Sea Lab 1 was placed about 25 miles southwest of Bermuda in nearly 200 feet of water. And remember, at that depth, you can't just breathe regular pressurized air because some of the gases become toxic. So the men down there were breathing a helium mixture, which will become important and kind of hilarious in a second. Now, you know how there's that famous moment in space history when Neil Armstrong confirms that Apollo 11 has landed on the moon, and he says... Griffin, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Well, it turns out there's a moment like that for Sea Lab, too. Ben sent me this audio that he uncovered for his book research, which, as far as we know, has not been heard by the broader public since it happened in 1964. So the voices that you hear here are Dr. Bond and a guy named Lester Anderson. Bond is the one who sounds normal, and Anderson is the one who sounds like he's breathing helium. You're the first one in, eh, Lester Anderson? Well, Lester Anderson, congratulations. Were you able to hold your breath all the way, or did you have to breathe some water? I know it's kind of hard to understand that tape, but basically Anderson confirms that he's in the enclosure and he's waiting for the other divers to follow him. The helium voice thing really does make a super historic moment seem totally absurd. I mean, you can even hear the other guys in the control room laughing. But this was a big deal. All four aquanauts made it down to Sea Lab, no problem. This was their moon landing. So the aquanauts of Sea Lab 1 went down there hoping to stay at 200 feet for 21 days. 
They did not make it the full 21 days, but not because of any health problems. Instead, a hurricane came through the area, so they pulled the aquanauts out early, just in case. But after 11 days, they had proven their point about, about saturation diving and about the ability to safely keep divers in a seafloor base so that they're free to come and go anytime they want. And at the time, this was totally amazing. Nobody knew what would happen. Nobody knew if this was possible or if the human body could take something like this. But Dr. Bond had proved that his harebrained scheme of saturation diving could actually work. That was unheard of. That was just like science fiction. And there they had had done it. But good luck finding the headlines about that. They are pretty few and far between. All of this was happening in tandem with the space race, but one got way more attention than the other. Sealab might have been a kind of national spectacle or, or turned into a cause for ticker tape parades for the aquanauts who had just spent record-shattering 11 days at 200 feet in a prototype capsule, something like a space station underwater, but no such thing happened. Uh, very few people could tell you where or when or who Uh, was involved. And at that same time, uh, everybody could tell you about the Mercury 7 and who last got launched into space and, and their names. And they were all in Life magazine and on the covers of everything. In fact, one of the first Sea Lab aquanauts was actually on TV, on a TV show called To Tell the Truth in 1964. The premise of the show is that a panel of celebrity guests are presented with three people who all claim to be the same person. And the panel has to ask them questions to guess which one is the real expert. Bob Barth, who was among the first humans in the history of the world to spend 11 days living, actually, uh, out of, in and out of a uh, newfangled sea base for 11 days, and nobody knew who he was. is your name, please? My name is Bob Bart. My name is Bob Bart. My name is Bob Bart. This man is the real Bob Bart. The other two are imposters, and we'll try to fool this panel. Tell the truth. Brought to you this week by new... Okay, so all the judges ask these three Bob Barths questions. Panel, these three gentlemen all claim to be Bob Bart. Aquanauts. Let's start this questioning with our own aquanaut. Kitty Carlisle. Oh, thank you. Uh, Number one, who built this uh, sea lab? The Navy in Panama City, Florida. Ah, thank you. Number three, when you got out of this, how did you feel? Well, uh, you mean we come back up to the surface? Yeah. Uh, There was no real ill effect from it, uh, just like an ordinary guy. Number two, if you had claustrophobia, what happened? Could you get out? And then at the end, they have to guess which one is the real one. Here are their guesses. I voted for number one. Uh, he, he, seemed, <laughs> he seemed to take the, uh, the event uh, with a little more uh, seriousness. And I heard that they lost interest in the life above the surface after a while. I didn't know that that uh, other expedition was in the Red Sea, but I'll, I'll trust that. Peggy Katz. Uh, I voted for number three. It was in the Red Sea, but after all I read it, he could have read it too. I voted for number three because every time we asked a question, he kind of went like, oh, any fool should know that. <laughs> <laughs> Orson Bean. I voted for number two because of his outrageous lie about the charcoal filter. (laughs) Which must be true. You couldn't make a thing like that up. It's ridiculous. Well, there's one, two, and three. With which are you casting your lot, Kitty? I voted for number two. 
because my feeling is that this sea lab was very small and there were four gentlemen in there and I believe that they had to be small gentlemen and number two was the smallest of the three so I voted for number two <laughs> all right you're <laughs> casting this in other words very well there we have it with the votes all in and the minds clearly made up let's see now which one of these gentlemen is in truth the astronaut who existed for some time beneath the surface of the deep. Will the real Bob Barth please stand up? It was number one, if you were keeping track. The real Bob Barth was number one. Now, had you had Alan Shepard or Scott Carpenter or John Glenn or Gus Grissom or any number of the Mercury 7 sitting there, that would not have made a very good program, as <laughs> everybody would have known. Uh, you, you couldn't have done that. Those guys were too famous. Well, let's find out about your two friends here. Number two, what is your real name and what do you really do? My name is Noel Bates. I'm president of Bates Associates, and we're private detectives. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, what is your real name and what do you do, sir? Uh, my name is Dick Johnson. I work for Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company and I fly the Goodyear Blimp. The fact that an aquanaut was indistinguishable to the panel from a private detective and the guy who flies the Goodyear Blimp is kind of sad. And what these aquanauts were doing was in many ways just as dangerous as what the astronauts were up to. And you don't have to take my word for it. An actual astronaut said that. You did have Scott Carpenter, the Mercury 7 astronaut, get involved in the C-Lab program. He died a few years ago, but he would tell you that uh, what he did with the C-Lab program was in many ways uh, more dangerous and more grueling and more difficult than anything he did with the space program. But even though they didn't get much media coverage, C-Lab 1 was such a success that the team was able to try again with a new, bigger underwater structure called C-Lab 2. And with C-Lab 2, they wanted to up the ante on how many people they could keep down and how long they could stay. We're going to have 10 guys at a time living in here, and they're going to be able to, we're going to show how they can do all kinds of different work while they're down there, and we're going to keep them down for two weeks at a time before we change teams and have another 10 guys stay down for two weeks and then another 10 guys stay down for two weeks and they're going to all be down for, you know, a total of six weeks. C-Lab 2 was also placed in a far more challenging location. Scripps Canyon off the coast of La Jolla near San Diego. The water in Scripps Canyon is way colder than Bermuda and the visibility can be really bad. I actually used to live in San Diego, and I'm a big scuba diver, and there were some days diving in Scripps Canyon where you couldn't see past your elbow. And the water is 45 degrees Fahrenheit instead of a nice 65 or 70 degrees in Bermuda. This temperature difference is extra important for Sea Lab, because keeping divers warm enough is actually a really big challenge in the habitat. Remember how I said that they were breathing a helium mixture instead of regular air? Well, helium is also a really good conductor of heat, which means that it steals heat away from your body. So they had to keep C-Lab 2 really warm. They really need to keep the heat up like well above 80 degrees, and there was a lot of humidity that went with that too. So it's not super deluxe conditions even in C-Lab 2. You're still living in sort of hot, sweaty locker room conditions. C-Lab 2's experiment began on August 28, 1965 three teams of divers moved into what they affectionately called the Tilton Hilton because the lab was on a slope and it tilted a little bit. 
One aquanaut, Scott Carpenter, the former astronaut, wound up staying for two cycles, spending 30 days down under the water. And things went really well. The most dangerous thing that happened was actually an encounter with a fish. What they hadn't foreseen was the gathering of scorpion fish that uh, was somehow attracted either to the light or the activity. It wasn't really clear, but these spiny or sort of spiky scorpion fish is kind of a football-sized fish with spikes like something like a porcupine that were both swimming around and kind of they'd sort of scooch into the sand in the bottom and they were sort of everywhere. Uh, It was kind of like a scorpion fish minefield out there. Scott Carpenter was inside Sea Lab and somebody dropped a glove into the open hatch where the water was. And he just instinctively kind of stuck his hand back into the water to grab the glove before it, you know, floated away. And in so doing, he stuck his hand right into a scorpion fish and got a pretty bad sting. Scorpion fish stings hurt like hell, and Carpenter was definitely feeling it, to the point where they thought they might have to bring him up early. The way he describes it is is pretty painful, like a kind of a turbocharged bee sting that really set his arm to aching and, and was really sort of laid up for a few days before it became clear that the effect of the fish poison would pass and he could go on and spend the rest of his 30 days in Sea Lab, which he did. And towards the end of his 30-day stay in Sea Lab 2, Scott Carpenter got a call from the president, Lyndon Baines Johnson. And this call wound up being hilarious. Remember, they're breathing helium, and you heard what their voices sounded like in that historic first entry moment. And Scott Carpenter's high voice totally confused the telephone operators. Here's a clip from the call. All right. Uh, Scott, we have a long-distance call for you. Will you hold, please? Operator, this is Commander Carpenter on the line. Thank you. Uh, Hello, Commander Carpenter? Scott? Yes. Can you hear me, operator? Yes, we can. Now, Scott, will you speak, please? Yes. How do you hear me, operator? Uh, not too well, sir. Uh, ma'am, uh, do you think it's possible to hear our teleconferator connection? I don't know. One, two, three, four, five, four, three, two, one. How do you hear that, operator? I understand you. Yes. But it's weak, I think. Hello, operator. Yes. We can't hear him. Is, he, uh, is uh, this what you can do for a connection?
They did eventually get Scott Carpenter and LBJ connected, but I'm pretty convinced that LBJ couldn't understand a word he was saying. So awkward phone calls with the president aside, C-Lab 2 is a success. Nothing bad happens. People can live underwater for a long time safely. This is a big deal. Here is Dr. Bond talking about the experiment in 1965 at a press conference at the Scripps Auditorium. Again, Ben sent me this audio, which he gathered for his book. And as far as we both know, no one has heard this tape since 1965. Barry Simmons from Channel 10, San Diego. Captain Bond, would you cite some of the achievements, highlight the achievements of this experiment for us? Well, I suppose that uh, from the principal investigator's point of view, the major achievement is sending 28 men down and getting back 28 men. Uh, That is... Uh, is not, uh, I say that not with my tongue in my cheek. This is a high-risk program. It's high-risk as far as the uh, material gains are concerned. It is an extremely hazardous program. These men are in hazard 24 hours a day, rather extreme hazard. And so it is with a prayer of thankfulness that I see them all return to the surface. Now, that is a highlight. Certainly a second highlight is confirmation of a sneaking suspicion that some of us have had for eight years at least, that it is possible indeed if you provide the satisfactory environment and breathing mixture, it is possible to put man under high pressures in a totally hostile environment and have him do useful work, gain his place on the ocean bottom where perhaps man has a right, and come back successfully. So since C-Lab 2 was such a success, they decide to try another one, C-Lab 3. And C-Lab 3 is where it all totally falls apart. Four years after the successful completion of C-Lab 2, they put C-Lab 3 in water that is three times deeper than the first two, 610 feet deep, off of San Clemente Island in California. To put that in perspective, at that time, very few humans had ever been to a depth of 600 feet as a diver, and those who did, some came back dead, uh, some came back injured, and even those who made the trip were able to stay at that depth for maybe five minutes before they began a very long decompression. But C-Lab 3 did not go as planned. Murphy's Law basically kicks in, and everything that can go wrong kind of does. First, a heating element broke in the pod they took down to the underwater base, so they were freezing cold before they even got into the cold water. Then there was a problem with the hatch in the floor. They couldn't get it open. So there's, you've got uh, some guys that, you know, down in the dark and 600 feet, and they essentially can't even get the door open to get this project started. Eventually, the divers gave up and started the long ascent back to the surface where they'd have to decompress before they could try again. Then they realized that the lab was leaking. And that's making it difficult to uh, keep the lab from flooding and to keep the, the gas mixtures safe. So they've got a leaking lab. The clock is running. The divers are saying, yes, we're cold and we're tired, uh, but we can do this. So let's just go do it again. And this is by now like the wee hours of the morning. They lower the pod once again back to the ocean floor. Barth heads out into the water towards Sea Lab with a buddy, a guy named Barry Cannon, while the other two guys stay in the pod as backup. Bob Barth and Barry Cannon get 
out of the pod as they did before. And they swim over again to try to open the hatch. But before they even get a chance to try the hatch, Bob hears some weird noises in the water. Here's some kind of like weird grunting or something. And so he drops everything and swims away from the hatch and uh, finds his uh, buddy convulsing, which can happen for any number of reasons when you're at diving at 600 feet. Now, the divers have no way of communicating with one another under the water. This is before you could have basically those walkie-talkies between divers. You can't yell for help or, or say, Houston, we have a problem. You just have to deal with it. So Bob Barth realizes that something really bad is happening, but he actually didn't have the strength to drag Barry Cannon all the way back to the pod, which was about 20 yards away. So he swam back alone. And another guy named Richard Blackburn has already suited up to help. So he goes out to try to get Barry Cannon. And ultimately, Blackburn, who's a a big, strong, uh, burly guy, was able to uh, reach uh, Barry Cannon and sort of using the airline that was uh, feeding gas to his dive rig from the pod as a kind of lifeline, uh, like a rope he pulled himself up on while swimming furious, you know, sort of kicking his legs furiously and pulling uh, Barry Cannon with, you know, by his other arm. They they were all able to get back into the pod. Unfortunately, by the time they got Barry Cannon back to the surface, it was too late. Sea Lab had suffered its first casualty. And there was an immediate uh, investigation that the Navy did. And in the meantime, they suspended the Sea Lab program. They just said, okay, we're not doing this right now. Everybody involved in C-Lab assumed that this pause was going to be just that, a pause, and that they'd get back to working eventually. But instead, the program was sort of allowed, was uh, initially suspended and ultimately just allowed to sort of fade away. Ben thinks that part of the reason C-Lab was allowed to disappear like this is precisely because most people had never even heard of it. I mean, if you can imagine if when uh, three astronauts died in the launch pad fire uh, just a couple of years before this Sea Lab accident I'm describing, if NASA had said, you know what, three guys just died in a launch pad fire, this is entirely too dangerous, we're shutting this whole thing down and we're not going to the moon, and sorry about that. That would have caused a considerable public outcry. But with Sea Lab, it just ended. Eventually, they retrieved Sea Lab 3 from the seafloor. And to add insult to injury, they didn't even preserve it. That might have made a uh, tremendous uh, relic for a future Smithsonian Museum exhibit and, and served as a reminder of uh, at all that went on with C-Lab. Uh, but in, instead, it was taken up to, uh, well, I think it wound up finally at, uh, at the former Mare Island shipyard in, in uh, Northern California. But it was just sort of languishing there and ultimately uh, cut up for scrap. Today, most people have never heard of Sea Lab, but it totally changed our understanding of what humans could do in the ocean. And even though you might not have heard of Sea Lab, you've almost certainly benefited from the program in some way. If you put gas in your car tank, you owe a debt to a saturation diver somewhere in the, the North Sea or somewhere like that who is um, repairing and monitoring and working on sea, on uh, offshore oil rigs that are standing some hundreds of feet in water. But along that water column, there's work to be done, and uh, that can be done by saturation divers. But experiments in living underwater didn't end with Sea Lab. Today, there are still a few different places where you can live underwater. It is about the size of a school bus. 
and it is anchored on the bottom at Conch Reef in the Florida Keys. The hatch depth where you get into the habitat is at 45 feet, and the, the ocean depth where it is, is anchored is 60 feet. And so it's right on the reef edge. And when we come back, we're going to hear from some folks who have lived underwater, what it's like, and what the laws are about construction on the seafloor. It turns out you can't just roll up and start building stuff in the ocean. But first, a quick break. Okay, so Sea Lab faded from memory, but today there are a handful of places you can experience underwater living. There's a hotel called the Jewels Undersea Lodge in Key Largo. There's a Hilton Hotel in the Maldives that has an underwater restaurant. And there are projects that have been proposed in places like Fiji and Dubai that would put residents even deeper under the water. There's also a research base off the coast of the Florida Keys called Aquarius. It is about the size of a school bus, and it is anchored on the bottom at Conch Reef in the Florida Keys. The hatch depth where you get into the habitat is at 45 feet, and the the ocean depth where it is, is anchored is 60 feet. And so it's right on the reef edge. I'm Jim Forker. I'm a professor of marine science at Florida International University. I'm the director of the Center for Coastal Oceans Research here at FIU. And as part of that job, I oversee the operations at Aquarius. So just like Sea Lab, the idea behind Aquarius is that people living there have direct access to the ocean at any time. So just like Sea Lab, Aquarius has a hole in the floor that leads straight out into the ocean. And going down to Aquarius, it's pretty cool. Uh, I think my first impressions when I went into Aquarius are exactly like everybody else's first impression that I've ever taken in there. It is, wow, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. You swim through a beautifully clear water column, there's a coral reef around you, and you pop up into a place where you can have a cup of coffee and and call home and talk science. Um, it's, It's really cool. But actually living down there, it's not exactly luxurious. It'd be a comfortable motorhome. There are, there are six bunks at one end. Once you get past that novelty, you know, realize, wow, I'm underwater and I can stay here and I can look outside and I can see all this fish and stuff like that. You know, that, that generally lasts about three days, you know. This is Roger Garcia. He's the operations director for Aquarius, and he's basically responsible for keeping everybody alive down there. There's any number of things that could go wrong, but again, always at my forefront is if I put six in, I need to get six back. And that's people. So Aquarius isn't a hotel. It's not designed to be fancy or even particularly comfortable. It's close quarter living conditions. Uh, You don't have the most comfortable beds at all. (laughs) Sometimes it's cold. Sometimes it's hot. It's humid. Um, You know, sometimes the air conditioning breaks. Jim says that in the past, Aquarius smelled really weird. Because of the way it was operated then, there was a tendency for every smell that ever went in the door to stay in the door. And, (laughs) but, but I say that's a, that's a thing of the past. Um, It's, it's actually quite pleasant in there now. It doesn't smell bad anymore, but the food still kind of stinks. Because of the higher pressure within the habitat and the higher partial pressure of oxygen, we don't have open flames in the habitat. So really all our cooking is done with an electric water heater and then we use that hot water to to heat our food. And there are some subtle things that you can't do down at the Aquarius base. You can't whistle. Um, The difference in density density of the air 
makes it so that uh, 99% of all people can no longer whistle. There are still a few that can do it, but you can't. So that's actually kind of surprising. Um, what makes someone, are they just, they were really good whistlers before? Is that the people who can whistle? Like, what makes someone able to whistle in, in Aquarius? I think it's the people that fig, that that feel challenged by the fact they can't whistle and they obsess about it and they spend a week trying to figure out how to do it. (laughs) But they do have some modern conveniences. Well, I I think at night, the main use of our bandwidth is Netflix. Uh, So we we have a... I'm so surprised that you have Netflix. No, we have a very fast internet connection. Aquarius generally hosts only a handful of divers at a time, and they stay down usually for about 10 days for each mission. And the logistics of keeping just a few people safe down there are incredibly complicated. There are almost always more people supporting the mission than actually on the mission itself. When we actually have to do a mission, um, I kind of take a look at what the customer needs are, um, objectives of the mission are, and uh, sometimes I have to get additional personnel. It's typically about 10 at a minimum to kind of help support the mission, but sometimes it takes more. Roger and his team have spent hundreds of days down at Aquarius, helping assist researchers and astronauts and all kinds of people who use the base. You know, with, with, with my staff, myself, you know, we have anywhere from 150 days underwater living inside the habitat all the way up to about 250 days inside the habitat. And the reason there have to be so many people involved in each mission is that when you're living underwater, a whole lot can go wrong. We can have an air hose that can rupture. Again, even though we do maintenance and we do visual inspections, you know, I mean, things just happen. Uh, When we're not out there, uh, even though it's a specially protected area and no one's supposed to be out there, I mean, people go dive and spearfish and do things they're not supposed to out there, you know. So sometimes they could run a fishing hook through a hose, you know, and the hose is damaged that way. So, you know, we can have a a hose that can uh, rupture and leak. We could have internal problem with the carbon dioxide scrubbing system. We can have flooding, leaks, bad weather condition. You know, sometimes uh, a storm could just develop so close to the habitat that we have to basically focus on just getting everybody out and the rest, you know, hope for the best kind of thing. And if something does go wrong while you're living at Aquarius, you can't just go to the surface. The way saturation diving works is that you get your body accustomed to the pressure and the gases at depth so that you can stay there for a long time. But getting your body readjusted back, that takes hours. There's sort of like a linear decompression schedule that basically takes about 15 hours and 45 minutes. So if someone gets sick or hurt, you can't just bring them to the surface. Every once in a while we do get... You know, some curious sharks uh, that get a little too close and, you know, we do have a threshold for that. You know, if they start coming close and they're getting a little too curious, uh, we just bring divers inside and just kind of wait it out. Because this is a little bit different. You know, if somebody accidentally gets bitten, you can't just go straight to the surface. You know, you have to come back to the habitat and you have to decompress. Um, Because even if the bite is not life-threatening, it's 10 stitches, um, if you bring them straight to the surface, you know, somebody somebody could really be badly injured from decompression sickness, and and the shark bite is just secondary. Roger and Jim spend a ton of money and time on Aquarius, so much so that they're both kind of skeptical that underwater cities are in our near future. Yeah, it costs about $15,000 a day 
to run a research mission in Aquarius? If it's not a pipe dream, it's it's a long, long way away um, because it is very difficult to support it, let alone, you know, be at a point where it's self-sustaining. Even if you started with a small community of, you know, 25 people, you know, and several different pods, but, you know, things break, things have to be maintained, even a wave generator on the surface, you know, you got to maintain it. Um, you know, what if it breaks, you know, who's going to, who's going to support it? Uh, and you just can, you, you can just go on and on and on food, trash, medical supplies. Uh, right. <laughs> so yeah, even something small to prove a concept is, is going to take quite a bit. And if anybody thinks it's not going to be expensive, uh, uh, they're, they're living in a dream world because it is going to be expensive. But something being expensive isn't always a deterrent, right? Right now, we have a handful of billionaires spending lots and lots of money on going to space, which is also very difficult and expensive. So what if an Elon Musk-type character decided that instead of spending their money on a Mars settlement, they wanted to spend it building an underwater city? Could they do that? Can you just buy land in the middle of the ocean and develop it? Well, that is considered common heritage of all humankind, um, as designated by the third convention of the United Nations Law of the Sea. This is Catherine Samler. She's a physicist and geographer who studies something she calls the vertical commons. The sky, the sea, the climate, all the stuff that people can't necessarily put a flag on and own. So after World War II, nations all over the world started making claims about how far their sovereignty extended out into the ocean. The law of the sea was trying to reconcile some of those differing claims, um, both for security reasons, so that nations knew what they could do where without um, starting a war, uh, but also for, for economic reasons, so that nations and private companies could begin to invest in developing offshore resources. The conversation around the Law of the Sea started in 1973, and it was signed in 1982. And then it actually came into force in 1994. Um, so it's still, you know, really a relatively new treaty that's, you know, delegating who can do what over 70 percent of the earth. It took almost 10 years for the U.N. to actually finish the Law of the Sea, because different nations had different ideas about how the ocean should be divided up. One of the big worries people had was that bigger, richer, more powerful nations might gobble up all the resources in the oceans before the less powerful nations could get a chance. So built into the treaty is a little bit of profit sharing and a little bit of technology transfer, although arguably not as much as um, developing nations had originally argued for. Um, the United States and some more developed nations, um, England and other nations, refused to sign the Law of the Sea Treaty until part of that profit sharing, what they considered to be socialist profit sharing, had been toned down. In fact, to this day, the United States has not officially ratified the Law of the Sea. It still comes up to debate every few years in Congress. So the Law of the Sea divides the ocean up into different zones. Everything from the coastline seaward out to 12 nautical miles would be considered uh, territorial waters. And that basically extends pretty much all the sovereign rights and responsibilities of that coastal nation uh, out into that 
territorial waters out to 12 nautical miles. Within those 12 nautical miles, the laws are the same as they are on land. And then from 12 to 200 nautical miles from a nation's shore, that's another zone. Kind of this special ocean zone that doesn't really quite have an equivalent on land, the exclusive economic zone, uh, which is often called the EEZ or the EEZ, depending on who your listeners are or where they're from. The EEZ is basically a region where a coastal nation has the right to build and mine and develop resources. They have to let ships pass through that zone so that global shipping can still function, but otherwise it all sort of belongs to them. The coastal nation that owns that exclusive economic zone has all rights to the fishing, to seabed mining, potential minerals on the seafloor, oil and gas drilling in that area, so the subsoil beneath the seafloor and all the resources within there, as well as any artificial installations. So the drilling platforms that you would need to access the subsoil minerals or maybe offshore wind or solar installations for energy or potential underwater habitats as well. Beyond 200 nautical miles, that's when you enter the open ocean. Now, you might think that out beyond these economic zones, it's totally lawless. But that's not the case. If you want to build something outside your EEZ, you have to apply for a permit with the International Seabed Authority. Which is located in Jamaica, which is a governance body that was created when the Law of the Sea was signed. Right now, there aren't any permit applications that I know of for undersea living. But there are people who are applying for permits to build stuff on the seafloor. They're just not permits for houses or living situations. They're permits for mining. Seabed mining is super fascinating, but we don't actually have time to talk about it on this episode. So if you are a $2 and up patron, you will get a whole thing about seabed mining in your newsletter this week. So we have this law of the sea that dictates what people are supposed to do out there. But not all nations abide by the law of the sea. Remember, the U.S. hasn't even signed the thing. And other countries like China are actively building in places that technically they are not supposed to be. The South China Sea is this really uh, difficult area where a lot of different nations, um, Vietnam and the Philippines and China and Taiwan, all have kind of overlapping claims where they believe that they own some of these islands, um, that they've had, you know, uh, fishermen living on these islands for, you know, thousands of years, and therefore it's part of their territory. So China has started exerting control in this region by building artificial islands and then claiming them. So they take sediment from the bottom of the seafloor and pile it on top of these reefs, which then brings the reefs above sea level. And by building up the reefs into a landed island, then they can put this infrastructure on top of these artificial islands that help them kind of control the sea space and airspace around the island. Now, artificial islands are not the same thing as underwater cities, but the legal framework here is actually not that different. You have a nation that's building something in a place that technically it's not supposed to be. It's not that hard to see a nation doing the same thing with an underwater habitat if they decide they want to spend a bazillion dollars on something like that. And it's even easier to see a private entity trying to do the same thing. But it turns out that when we start to think about private companies building underwater habitats, the law of the sea really isn't prepared for that. 
Well, you, you really sent me down a rabbit hole before this interview and thinking about some of these things because my research previously has been thinking about resource development, the development of mines you know, to gather minerals. But the development of space itself as a resource hasn't been something I had really thought about as far as the seafloor goes. And it's not something that the people that were working on the Law of the Sea Treaty were thinking about. Um, you know, despite, you know, Jacques Cousteau's premonition that we'd all be living under the sea with gills implanted on our necks back in the 60s, people were much more interested in figuring out how to divide up the sea for mineral development or fishing development. They hadn't thought it was important to write about um, potential installations for other purposes. Remember a few weeks ago when we talked about how the laws surrounding space travel were written at a time when really only nations could engage in space exploration? And how now, with all these private companies entering the space, things are getting a little bit confusing? Well, it's kind of the same with the law of the sea. The law was not written with private billionaires in mind. Um, So there really isn't a path forward for a private citizen to go out and build their own installation um, without kind of the the backing of their home nation. And so if Elon Musk wanted to go out and, and build a structure in the high seas, he could potentially get the backing of any nation to flag that installation under Panama or some flag that has more lax labor conditions, that has less environmental rules. And so they would be under the jurisdiction of whatever nation state might sell them uh, a flag. The law of the sea does say that any building has to be for the benefit of all mankind, which might put a wrinkle in some private billionaires underwater supervillain lair type thing. And if the idea of rich people destroying ocean habitats to build super expensive and unwieldy underwater houses bothers you, Catherine did find one stipulation in the law of the sea that might help future us keep that from happening. There's something that I found in the law of the sea treaty that I thought was kind of interesting regarding developing habitat in the deep sea or really anywhere in the ocean. There's provisions in the law of the sea that talk about the introduction of alien or new species that might be harmful to the marine environment. And in reality, I think introducing a permanent habitation of human species into the deep sea might in and of itself be kind of this introduction of an invasive alien species to the marine environment, which potentially could be argued against based on some of these provisions about protecting the marine environment. Now, introducing humans themselves would be bringing in a new alien species, even if that's not the original intention of what they were writing. If you've ever been scuba diving, you're probably familiar with this feeling that you're totally not supposed to be there, that you're absolutely an alien species in a completely different world. That's what's so alluring about diving and living underwater, but it also might be the thing that should make us pause and consider whether it's really a good idea to start building cities in places that we really don't understand. That's all for this future. Whew, we covered a lot. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Eveleth. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Hasselonia. 
The voices of the future for this episode were provided by Stephen Grenad and Andrea Klunder. You can find Stephen's work at his Twitter, which is at Sargent, S-A-R-G-E-N-T. And you can check out Andrea's podcast, The Creative Imposter, anywhere you get your podcasts. The episode art is, as always, by Matt Lubchansky. If you want to suggest a future we should take on, send me a note on Twitter, Facebook, or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. I love hearing your ideas. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references that I've hidden in this episode, email me there too. If you're right, I will send you something cool. And if you want to support the show, there are a few ways you can do that too. Head to flashforwardpod.com support for more about how to give. But if financial giving is not in the cards for you, you can head to Apple Podcasts and leave us a nice review. Or just tell your friends about the show. That really does help. That's all for this future. Come back next time and we'll travel to a new one.